0: Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at That's s-double-e-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So, plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 94 with the title Beyond the Closet. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome TJ Richards. TJ describes themselves as a program manager and LGBTQ. Plus network chair at Santander, and also chair of trustees at Q Alliance. And when I asked TJ to describe their superpower, they said, is talking a superpower? Because they sure do love to do it. Hey, TJ, how are you? Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for for allowing me to join you. I've been a huge fan of your show from the beginning. And of course, you know, you and I have known each other for a couple of years, so really excited to be here. And when you, you know, when we talk about today's episode of of Beyond the Closet, I think that's such an amazing title because, it, you know, what my journey, and I, I imagine a lot of other people's journey is very similar, is that working out that you're in the closet in the first place, and then that journey of figuring out how the hell you get out of the closet and what that looks like for you and how you live a life without those boundaries. And it's such... Such an exciting topic. I'm really excited to be here today and, and talk to you about it.
0: Because, yeah, I mean, for most people, and, and I say most, the majority, we've had a census, we know that this majority of people don't even realize there is a closet <laughs> or something to escape, do they? Mm. They just wake up and they they're always themselves.
1: Yeah, and it's so amazing because it's not until you you stop to ask yourself that question that you start to realize whether you you know whether you are in a closet and maybe you know maybe closet's an outdated term i don't know certainly the term i grew up with but finding out realizing that actually you're operating within a set of boundaries that you've not necessarily chosen for yourself and that could be your sexuality that could be your gender identity that could be just the social role that society has put on you based on, what you know, your perception to them. All of those boundaries play into sort of how you operate in the world and realizing that actually I don't have to. It's quite liberating and, and and revolutionary in a sense. And it's a journey I think many of us have gone on. And honestly, I wish the whole world would go on it because it's a question we can all answer for ourselves, whatever the answer is. Who do I want to be in the world and how do I be that person in a way that makes the world a better place? Like you said, you know, that's that's the ultimate goal to be to leave it a little bit better than we found it. Right.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You you question whether closet is an outdated term, I suppose. When I was going through my self-discovery and exploration, I, I kind of used the metaphor around the three phases. But the first one was a cage, a zoo. You're trapped behind the bars, living by somebody else's rules, where you have no negotiation. You're trapped in that cage, basically Absolutely. existing under under someone else's rules. And then the, the fire extreme I was talking about was the, the, the plains of Africa, wild, roaming free. But then you're living in a world where you have got no safety you've got mm. no guarantee of support or no family around you you're at a waterhole being risked by eating by a by a lion or a, an alligator or a crocodile jumping out at you so i was always trying to find what i call my safari park which is kind I of like this that. this place you can exist where the boundaries were so great you never hit the fences you there was you get you got fed you got looked after you got someone caring for you if you were ill or sick someone was there but you, you don't feel trapped because you, you the boundaries are so vast and, and bountiful, and then you can exist in that world outside of the cage and not in the wild in this safe zone. And that that's what I was always trying to find. I, I called it trying to find my safari park uh, existence. That. Yeah,
1: that, that's really I you know I've not I've not thought about it in that way before, but I think you're right. There is there's a freedom to not having the bars around you, right? there's also you know there's risk to to being completely on your own and exposed and unprotected as well and you know that's that that feeling i think of being completely on your own is you know unfortunately something that a lot of people in our community and you know outside of our community but specifically for this topic is something that a lot of us have gone through i mean i i don't know about you joe but when i when i came out to my family It was a it was a rocky road, and for a good a good while we didn't talk because there was disbelief maybe or a, a full hearted belief that I was doing something that was putting my very soul in jeopardy, and it was their duty to tell me this over and over and over and over again, and I tried real hard. And it's so hard to understand from, to be empathetic from their point of view. You know, they fully believed that I was, I was making a mistake, that it was a phase, that I was doing something wrong. And I fully believed the opposite. But if we had just shouted at each other and then shut down, that period of not talking would have never finished and there would have never been any progress. But that journey to, journey to allyship, right like that that journey i had years to sit with the idea of wow i might be gay you know and that was really really hard and it took me a long time to come to terms with it and then i remember when i told my parents you know in in separate instances cuz they were divorced not being fully happy with the way that they responded but also afterwards realizing they had half a second to come to terms with that. Whereas I had had years to think about it and come to terms with it and get used to the idea. And actually that allowed me to have a little bit of empathy for their perspective. I didn't agree with it. Of course not, because I am me and I'm happy being me. But that space to grow, you have to give that space to grow, I think, and it's, I, I don't know where I was going with that, Joe. I told you, talking is a superpower thing on topic, not necessarily. But I think that it's that having that freedom to make that choice, but knowing that you've got a support network somewhere, family, chosen yeah. family, community, whatever that is. I think that's so important.
0: It, it also respects the the boundaries of of society, social mm. constructs, not saying I want to be t- constricted by social constructs but i respect there are constructs to follow i will i will have a better experience in my life if i'm willing to play some games and compromise without it, it impacting who i am i recognize that i have a responsibility to be a good citizen as well and the world doesn't always revolve around me i'd like it to as we'd all would but it doesn't revolve around me oh, i think yeah. what you're saying there about when you said you you uh, you, you, you shared your sexuality you shared your gender identity with people and and they they thought you were making the wrong decision i mean i had a similar challenge where i don't think people actually said i was making the wrong decision it was more what about them because yeah. i've married i've got two children so my wife w- was concerned about how it would reflect on her our marriage her own sexuality her own sense of identity, and her aspirations and dreams of the future. So quite rightly, she had a concern about her. And obviously, I thought it was all about me. I didn't realize it was actually about other people, this transitioning malarkey. And my daughter, our daughter, she was very, she found it really, really difficult for many years, probably three or four years, and we didn't talk a lot in that period, because she had to come out to her network, her friends, her colleagues, and she was now the daughter of a, a trans dad, if you like. So I didn't appreciate all these different dynamics at play that wasn't about me. It was about how I impacted others. And as you said, you, you have to have a level of empathy and compassion for what I've triggered, you know, caused. And not my fault, it just is. But I've been the catalyst for all these changes. And then I found the challenge was being the, the pain giver but also the pain fixer I had to try and make it better mm. or, or smoother over but I was the, I was the problem and that, that that was probably the hardest thing I, I had to come to terms with
1: I th- yeah and I think you're absolutely right because it's that understanding <clears throat> sorry it's that understanding that the the words that are coming out of your mouth the decision that you've made to be honest about yourself and who you are and who you need to be in the world to thrive and be happy that has effects on other people it it does you know and and i remember it, one conversation being told well what about what about my grandkids i'm never going to have grandkids now because of this and i thought well, that's because I hate children, not because I, okay, no. <laughs> I don't hate. I love children. I'm definitely not. I'm child free by choice, but you know, it, it it was that they had expectations and plans for their life that involved me because I'm I'm a love. You know, we're we're loved ones, and I was changing that dynamic, and there were you know ripple effects of that that needed to be worked through, and we you know we were eventually able to work through those together and and arrive at a better place. But it was that acknowledgement that there's a journey that our loved ones have to go on to grow. And some of them are already there, right? You see, I love seeing stories like I'm, I'm on TikTok all the time of young people coming out to their parents and their parents being like, yeah, but I love you. So it doesn't matter. And that just It warms my heart in a way that also breaks it with happiness, right? Like, amazing. And I love seeing the potential of where our society and where humanity can go when we just open ourselves up and say, I love you. That's all that matters. You're happy. I'm happy. I love you. Let's carry on and live our lives. And that's the world I want. And I think that's the world that as a sort of inclusion, you know, belonging, activists that that we're all working for right like we want that for ourselves and for future generations it's got to get better it's got to I won't let it go anywhere else
0: it's funny what you're saying there about watching tiktoks about people coming out to their parents and things I came out to my mum and I think she was 76 at the time (laughs) and and it was a coffee shop in in the local town we sat there having a coffee and i was beating around the bush and started crying and then just blurted it out sort of thing and fair play to my mum she handled it pretty well and she just listened and we talked i'm not sure how much understanding or context she had around it but she talked and we talked and i if you try and find resources on coming out to your parents, it's all got young people imagery and young young family imagery on it. There's no, there's no manual on coming out to your 80-year-old your family. <laughs> so I've printed out all these brochures, all these downloads, all these PDFs and brought them with me and left, left them in an envelope with a letter in there. Because you know the way it is. You come out, you say something, and immediately the person's got more questions or they've they misheard or something like that. So I made sure there was a letter. Tag everything i was going to say and all this supporting documentation i said look here's an envelope when you get home you're going to want to you're going to want to think about this and digest it here's everything you, you could possibly want and we met again a couple of weeks later she'd obviously read this cover to cover several times and she was starting to get on message she wasn't quite ready to embrace me as me but she said give me time and let's let's talk about this let's uh evolve this and i think it took about six months for her to finally I suppose, to be brave enough to have me openly be with her. It took a couple of more years to tell my dad, but I did eventually, I wrote him a letter because he's he's very hard of hearing. And so writing a letter was much easier to put it in context. And bless him, his, his, his reply was very supportive. However, it had a, don't be hasty, we can fix you type undercover in it which it was well-meaning it wasn't it wasn't nasty it wasn't malicious it was just this belief that from his perspective and his lived experience that queer people were broken and that's you know that's how he how he saw it but he wasn't disappointed in me he wasn't rejecting me he just wanted to be fixed i i didn't respond to that letter i I left it a year and wrote him another letter and just say look this is where i am this is what I'm doing. This is the success I've had as me. Some examples of businesses I've worked for, things I've done and achieved. Sort of say, you can't be proud of me. I'm not broken. I don't need fixing. I've made a life, and we're and we're we're loving it. So yeah, I think you just got to bear with people. And I could have easily fallen out. I could have easily reacted badly. But yeah, I, I suppose the thing I've learned is is around this talking, communicating, compassion. And I suppose the biggest lesson is it's not all about me, and that's what that the biggest thing I learned.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, and, and it's funny saying you you wrote a letter and had supporting documents. That's what I know of you, Joe. That's so Joe. <laughs> I when I I came out to my my mother first. I, I said my my parents were divorced, uh, so I came out to my mother first. That was left a lot to be desired, and we didn't talk for a while after that. Although we've moved on. But when I, I was so nervous and so scared of coming out to my dad and my stepmom. And I don't know why, because that side of the family is so queer, so queer. Like, I don't know if there's something in the water in Mississippi, or it's just my grandma's amazing genes or what it was. But, you know, I had two gay uncles, I had queer cousins, Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't Something odd or new, or something that nobody knew about, but I was terrified, and I was living in England I just transferred I was in the u s Air Force before I got kicked out i was I was transferred over here and I, it was right after September eleventh so we were in in the Middle East, and I thought right if i I had a girlfriend at the time. I'm telling the story in terrible order. I had a girlfriend at the time called Tony, who's now my wife of over 20 years. But I was suddenly faced with the situation of if I were to die or be injured, or if anything were to happen to me in what is a war zone, right? And I'm 19, 20 years old. They would tell my parents but my parents didn't know Tony existed, so Tony would never know, and that was terrifying right and and absolutely heartbreaking, so I thought, right, I've gotta fix this. So I had friends on the base that knew, so in case something would happen they would they would be able to tell Tony and they were really supportive, right? They would come pick up letters so that Tony could send them across to me for free through the military network. It was absolutely lovely but i and now I am showing my age, Joe. There was I found one book that was about coming out to your parents, old later in life, right? Like not as a child, and it was Ellen DeGeneres's mom who had written a book about her life and Ellen and Ellen coming out to her and how she had grown and come to terms with it. And Amazon was a, a just a bookstore back then, right? This is how old I am. And I ordered that book and I had it sent to my dad and my stepmom with no, I i chickened out. There was no note, just this book turned up at their door. And then I gave it about a week and I, I used my my phone call to call home. And my, my stepmom was like, oh, I got your book. And I was like, oh, cool. So, you know, what do you think? And she said, TJ, we've always known. And I was like, gosh, if you I mean, thank you. Love it. The support is there clearly, but I kind of wish you'd told me because I've spent years terrified of this moment and you've just been waiting for me to find the strength to do it. So I have always teased her that, like, you could have told me a few years ago and saved me some angst. (laughs) But yeah, the Ellen DeGeneres book, well, Ellen's mom's book, whose name I can't remember at the moment, great resource. Probably a little out of date now. There's probably newer ones, but it it helped me <laughs> oh,
0: that's wonderful no I think it's a great story I think it's I actually asked my mum Did she have any idea or any inkling and she said she had no idea no inkling and majority of my friends you know if you had to do a vote who's the least likely person in the friend group to be trans I would probably have been top of the list you know I was not a candidate I was not a candidate which is probably why it shocks so many people uh, yeah I, felt, I think my friends found it quite hard because there's always this belief you've been living a lie or every, every experience we've had has always been this has been there you know i never said something so it was quite hard at times but i've I, I, i've deliberately walked away from my male only groups and friends because it's just that sense i don't feel that sense of belonging you know if mm-hmm. I'm, it's not i'm not included it's that belongingness it's not my space it's not my place anymore and I, I was always fighting with it, but I was at one of these di- these dudes. It's like a small group. It's a 15, 20 old male friend in black tie, and I was in a dress. Completely welcomed, and we're, we're, we're driving home afterwards. I offered to give a couple of them a lift back to the Isle of Wight Ferry. And one of them said, uh, said thanks for your story, Joe. As you probably realise, my daughter is trans, and I said, I, well I knew your daughter when we used to go camping together as your son and I, he said yeah it was it's remarkable and knowing you knowing what you've been through knowing the story having the conversation with you over those years when my daughter came out as trans it, it was it, I was just so ready for it it was uh, actually so empowering and then the person in the other seat said uh, oh yeah and my uh my eldest is uh, has come out as non-binary and we're having all this conversation in this car this is random car of my best friend sort of thing and this." At three quarters of us that's four in the car three quarters of us have a trans story or a non-binary story and it's a I just suddenly thought actually i've got more in common with these people than i ever imagined i imagined that i was an outlier here rather than them all having a family or a close connection experience and i felt immediately connected to them in a, in a way i never imagined so I, I probably prejudged them as being not understanding but yeah it's the stories i hear all the time i'm sure you do as well and you uh, yeah, me.
1: I think. I mean, you maybe maybe prejudged. I mean, that's for you to decide. But I think what you probably did is jump started that journey for them, so that when when that situation occurred later, they were able to link it back to, "Well, I've got a friend that that's gone through something similar. I can empathize now." Yeah. And I think that the empathy is such an important part of of just life, right? Of being a good human but also being a good ally is being able to see things from other people's perspective to actually feel, you know, put yourself in their situation and feel what they might be feeling and then sit with that because that can be quite uncomfortable sometimes and then work out, you know, what, what does that feel like for them and how can you support them? And sometimes that support is just being their friend, right? Like just being an open ear that people can talk to And then suddenly life comes along and your kid tells you, hey, we need to have a conversation and you're prepared. Whereas, you know, when we were, when we were going through that, maybe that wasn't the case for our parents. So I feel like we're able to, in the positions that we've managed to attain in life, we're able to sort of push that needle just a little bit further for other people so that the doorways are more open for the next generation. And I think that's, if that's all I accomplish in life, that's enough, right?
0: I want to say about uh, back when you were in the the military Mm. and your partner, girlfriend at the time, Tony, and that need to ensure that they had a level of protection, whatever that may be, or respect or whatever about the relationship. I can resonate with that because we've, our parents are getting to the elderly stage so my mum's in the mid-80s my dad's 90-ish marie's dad is 90-ish and her mum passed away february this year so we're we're kind of we've been through this care home we've been through this hospitalization we've been through power of attorneys we've been through wills and probate and all this kind of stuff and what it made us realize is that if we want to have agency in our later life we have to do something about it now. Otherwise, whoever's left may not have their wishes respected. Mm. Marie's faced with the, opportunity, the thing of, of me not being around and her having to defend my memory in a certain way against you know, death registration, all these kind of things, burials or, or whatever it may be, or dementia in a care home and making sure that my, my identity and my, my being is respected in that situation. So we have to make decisions now around protecting our status and my, my status, if you like beyond what I was really felt I needed to do for me is I'm, I'm no I'm not going to do it for me. I'm doing it because yeah. You know, why do I need a, a gender recognition certificate? It's, I don't need it, but what I need to do is make sure that I have it for the future. And there are other things I'm, I'm making sure that, so, so that it, it, it doesn't become a question that I, Marie has to answer in t- 20 years time when I can't. And it, it's, that's the frustration of not being the default, isn't it?
1: It's not mm-hmm. being the
0: majority. It's having to double think everything.
1: Absolutely. And you know, we that that having to think about you know your loved ones. How do they? How can you support them when you know they have to make these difficult decisions? And maybe you're not there, or you're not compass mentis. I know Tony and I regularly talk about oh, our life in the care home, right? Like we're constantly talking about how we're going to have an amazing life in a care home eventually with sponge baths and the works. But the reality for so many people is that, you know, they they go into a care home and they, you know, I've heard so many stories of them having to go back into the closet because the the situation that they suddenly find themselves in against their will in in some respects is that they they're not, they don't have that support network anymore. They're not supported. They don't feel safe being out or maybe their partner isn't acknowledged when they come to visit. And in fact, I was talking about this with a, a friend, uh, Matt Riley, years ago, who's since gone on to start, I think, Tonic Housing, which is a an LGBT retirement community. And like, I'm all over that. Can you imagine? That would be like the the utopia. If I have to go into a home, to go into one surrounded by my community, Supported to still be myself and not have to worry about that, my my identity being acknowledged, respected, understood, on top of everything else that I'm dealing with, is is the utopia. I have no idea how I got off on that topic. Uh, Joe, I told you no. you're going to need a leash for me.
0: No, no, it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm visualizing the sponge bath in the, in the car. <laughs> <home>. <laughs> And hoping it's the right kind of sponge bath and not purgatory. So it's, I'll leave it up
1: to your imagination. Things, you know, <laughs> you get bored when you get old. I reckon.
0: I think you're probably right. You're probably right. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're, you mentioned your chair of the uh, the, the LGBTQ plus network at your organisation. What challenges do you find working with organisations at that at, at that sort of level? To bring sort of queer representation into their policy, marketing, product, whatever it may be.
1: Yeah, it's so. I'm a I'm the network co-chair for Santander's LGBT network, Embrace, and I've done it for I think about seven years now. My my other co-chair, Darren Kerrison, has been there since the beginning, and we make a great team. And I think the the challenge has been understanding and and being able to honor that line between the my personal view of, you know, total revolution take over the world and and also understanding that people move at a pace, right? I can't I can't make people run before they can walk. I can't I can't dominate the world and make it the place I want it to be without taking people along on the journey, right? Uh, not that I'm ever going to be a dictator. This isn't <laughs> this isn't that. But it's, it's that understanding that you have to change takes time, much like we were talking about that journey to allyship, right? It takes time for people to understand and move. And sometimes I have to respect that there's processes involved to update a policy and it can't be done at a snap of a finger, even though I'm like, but it's just three words. It's, it's that having to temper my enthusiasm. To to bring it to a level where people can actually follow along and we can make that progress and make it in a sustainable way, right? If you push the needle too far, it will start to pull back. So you have to do it slow and steady, even pace. And for me, I think it's just the impatience. I want a world where everyone is allowed to be themselves and not allowed, expected, celebrated to be themselves. And that's just the expectation. We don't, there's not coming out. There's not anything special. We are just people who are living our lives. And that's all it ever needs to be. We're not there yet. There's so much work left to do. And it feels like every day watching the news, as much as I may try to avoid it, that there's more and more piling on the plate of the work that we need to do. And some of it is work that I'm sure we've already done. And it's coming back onto our plate because it feels like maybe there's a a backwards slide, but it's the impatience for me. I just want everything fixed now, Joe. I want it all now. <laughs> like Viola and, and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I want it now.
0: Violet, Valegra- Valegra- that's it. Violet. Yeah.
1: Viola is my, uh, my Venus fly up. Sorry. <laughs> so-
0: she she she's the chewing gum person. She's the chewing gum one, isn't she? That's it has the blueberry chewing gum and swells right up like a balloon. Yeah, that's that's the one with the rich daddy. That's that's the one. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they all have rich daddies, and if I remember, if I rightly, so I, I'm I'm a consumer. I'm a customer. I as I'm trans, and I I accept that organizations will will get it wrong, but the frustration thing is. I mean, I work with a lot of large organizations like yourselves, like other Mm -hmm. banks, like other comms companies. And I know that most of the companies out there, the household names, have staff networks, have ERGs, have inclusion policies, have trans, non-binary, queer inclusion ethoses. I know that the intent and the corporate mission is wholly behind getting it right. But it's that frustration, isn't it? You you walk in, you make a phone call, and everything goes wrong. And Mm. it's like, what? Come on. Yes, I've got a deep voice. I'm sorry, I've got a deep voice, but what else can you ask me? And I think I, I had a challenge with uh, with Santander I, a few years ago, which you helped me out with. I also had a, a challenge with with Metro Bank. And this is not to to name a shame or to call you out, mm. but what it highlighted was I'm privileged because I know you.
1: Yeah,
0: I may I reached out on LinkedIn or sent you an email with with Metro Bank. I I delivered a trans awareness session. To them three months previously, and so I knew the head of people. So I, I was straight onto LinkedIn to the head of people and the people who organised that, the, the staff network. So I was able to make my problem disappear mm. by going by going round the roadblock for the you know the front door says no you can't, you must go to branch with ID before mm. we can before we can validate you and take you forward, and I said these aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> And I you wouldn't ask anybody else for this information. Why have you chosen to pick on me? Well, we don't believe who you are. Okay, because my voice. Is that what you're saying? You don't believe me because of my voice. So you are discriminating against me under the protect, under the, <laughs> the Equality Act. But the risk profile kicks in, the risk management profile kicks in, and that people are risk averse, aren't they? And that, that's what's going on here.
1: Absolutely. And it's, you know, the 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 rampant amount of of consumer risk happening in the market at the moment is Gobsmackingly large, so I, I understand the the need to protect customers to make sure that they're not being you know scammed and things aren't aren't being stolen from them. But you do you know there is that balance with also treating your customers like like people and understanding that we don't all sound the same, you know. And I've yes. we were I've had exactly the same situation not too long ago with another company who I won't name because I can't remember if it was exactly them or not but where essentially the they they just didn't believe that I was who I said I was because my voice didn't match their perception of who I should sound like and that was so frustrating because how can I prove it over the phone right I am me have my security questions, ask me, I'll tell you about my mom. I'll tell you my life story. What do you want? And I think that is the, that is the challenge because there's that balance between, you know, risk and safety. And how do we confirm that in a world that is increasingly more and more filled with people who are lying and telling that difference is hard and I get it. But I think we can do better. I always think there's more we can do. And the processes sometimes leave a little bit to be desired, right? But what I love about you know about Santander and even about your story there is that even if you're raising it with a person to say, right, this is my problem, we need to fix it. It's my job as, as a network lead at Santander. And and I imagine, you know, the head of people at Metro Bank did exactly the same. Right. How did we get here and how can we fix this so that it doesn't happen to other people? And it's that sort of deeper analysis of understanding what's gone wrong and how can we make it better that constantly happens in the background. And there are so many processes in every organization that I don't know that that work will ever be done, but, the fact that they're always willing to listen to me when i say hey why don't we why don't we talk about this because this answer feels wrong so how did we get here their hearts in the right place and i can work with that and and i found that you know even when we were working through your situation we were able to resolve it because people were open to going oh you're right this this isn't the right outcome for our customers and we need to make things better mm. so it's always work to be done <laughs> never never ending
0: I I think the, I mean, for those who are listening, you've probably heard the term "calling it out." There's also another term called "calling it in," which is you don't just shout; you you educate. And I think going through the experience with yourselves, and also the Metro Bank, and many other organisations I've worked through, that my outcome isn't around compensation or 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 wanting someone to prostrate themselves on the floor and apologise, but my outcome is always education 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 and someone should learn from this and the process will be better next time and i'm prepared to give you my time and effort and my experience on this to help educate and i think that's why i I try not to get angry i try to do it through the education which is it's not always easy you know if you've again if you're listening this and you've heard the expression microaggression putting the burden back onto the person that's been discriminated against or burdened is not always a great idea but if 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 not me, then who's going to say something? So you, sometimes you just have to sort of say, "Okay, I found a gap. Let me fix it. Let me get, let me get in here and help solve it." And yeah, it, it, but it's it's burdensome though, isn't it?
1: It can be, and you know, it's the it's that what's that phrase? Have I got the spoons for it today? And there are some days I don't I don't have the spoons, and then there are other days where I'm like, right, I feel like this is my job. I need to make this better. So that it doesn't affect other people. You know, and whether that's, we had a situation a while ago now where we were going into a, a supermarket and it, we were on our way, we were on a, a road trip, right? And we just needed to grab some bits, snacks for the road, because road snacks are important, and use the loo. And Tony came in with me. We went into the women's loo because there were only women's and men's options, fine. And we were stopped by a cleaner who, you know was was mopping the floors right outside and said to to my wife, "You can't come in there, you can't go in there, and that moment of being like, "Do I have the spoons to argue? Am I just like what are what are we gonna do?" And you have that split second to make that decision, how are you going to deal with it And sometimes you don't have the spoons, and I think that's okay in this case, we did have the spoons, and like you. I knew the right people to talk to in that organization to to fix that situation, and it ended up with the the company involved going through some some training around diversity and inclusion, and actually just letting people use the loo like it's okay. So yeah, I think helping people knowing people helps, but the role of the people is that it's their job to fix it then, so that or, or to put things in place so that that's less likely to happen again. It, we're not, nobody's perfect, but it, we need to make it better.
0: As you're talking now, I'm sniggering. You <laughs> if you've listened to this, you can't see me sniggering because it brought back a story that I experienced uh, pre-COVID for me pre COVID, three or four years ago. as so I'm a member of a, a, an ex armed forces club in the UK, in London. So I'm, I'm ex RAF. And I was going in, and as I was going through the front door, someone started shouting out, Excuse me, sir, excuse me, sir and I, I was just ignoring it thinking i'm not going to play their game so i just ignored it and eventually they said excuse me without the sir on the end and i, I turned around and said what and he said uh, whatever it was i needed to do And i said it's not sir it's madam by the way not happy with you shouting sir at me but yeah whatever so we dealt with the problem so i, I asked look, i went to the reception and said look can i just speak to your uh the person that handles this kind of complaint please whoever it may be and they came down to see me and, and they said uh I i said look you know i'm not trying to make a big deal of this all i want to do is just try and create some education here that they they just dropped the sir off the end of the of the end of the sentence just say excuse me and just talked about you know de-gendering conversation those sort of things and they said well we do all this quality stuff and we have our, our regular edi training and then and i said well clearly it's not working and so I'd, I'd like you to sort of take it more seriously and have a conversation. And if we were just wrapping up the conversation and this person turned around to me and said, uh, thank you, sir, that was really useful. And I went, and I, we paused at that point there. I looked at him, he looked at me and I said, so you've just proved the point. Clearly your EDI training t- is a tick box and doesn't work because just, it's just misgendered just misgendering this conversation, having had a conversation about misgendering. And he went, "Why is a sheet. He went, oh. I'm really sorry. I'll, I'll write up a complaint against myself as well. I said, but no, it's not about that. It's about meaningful change. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm I recognise that my voice ID, my my voice print is in the male range, and it's really hard for humans to sort of override some of these primary senses and responses. We're so ingrained, so I, I get it. And uh, but it just highlighted that there's this people believe they're doing the EDI tick box every year training. It's, it's not meaningful. It's not. It's not embedding it. It's not. It's not diving into into lived experience, and it, that's that's what I think we need to uplift in society is better lived experience training and, and and experiential stuff.
1: And I think that you know that links back to what you were saying about your your friends. You know, it, they may have been on an EDI course at work. They may know tangentially about EDI and and those those sort of theories but i think for humans in general until you live through that until you have some lived experience of interacting with people who aren't the same as you that's when you that's when it drives it home for you and that's why i think it's so important for you know going out and And meeting other people, talking to other people, whether that's, you know, university, college, those are are great examples of when people, a lot of people first sort of mix outside of their little bubble for the first time. And that's why I think education can be such a, a powerful agency for change, right, and for inclusion, because suddenly people are interacting with someone who has a different life experience than them. And maybe they use different pronouns or maybe, you know, they're like me. I I said earlier, I'm a woman like a tomato is a fruit. Yes, but also kind of, hmm. So I, you know, I understand that people have that journey to go on. And I think the key to that is talking and and, you know, interacting with other people in a genuine way. And having the spoons at the time to have those conversations, like you said, and and make that change in those tiny incremental moments, they build up to suddenly your mate going, Oh yeah, my daughter came out as trans and I was perfectly okay with it because I dealt, you know, I'd gone through this before and I knew what it meant. Those incremental changes build up, you know, a snowflake is a blizzard. I love that.
0: I'm a great believer a snowflake on its own will hit the ground and melt a snowflake with a billion friends is an avalanche mm-hmm. it creates change and landscapes move. So yeah, I'm a great believer. If, call me a snowflake or you like, but I'm, I stand with others.
1: I'm all right we with will that. Not
0: yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, I was talking to, I was out with a friend the other day and we were talking about the, the Rishi Sunak. <laughs> Baiting he did, you know, a man's a man, a woman's a woman. And I, and I, I listened to it and I said, you're right. I am a woman. You're right. I don't disagree with what you've just said. A woman's a woman. I am a woman. I don't. So, I, I found it very difficult to get angry with that statement because I agreed with it. I'm a woman. I pay my taxes, as far as HMRC are concerned, as far as my doctors concerned, as, far as my dentist, my my VAT registration, my my company's house. Everything I have treats me as a woman. Identifies yeah. as a woman. Passport, driving license, everything. So, legally, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as the government is concerned. I'm a woman, so a woman's a woman. I agree. We don't need to get into adjectives and splitting hairs about what constitutes. Mm. Or what you say your definition of womanhood is different to other people's definition of womanhood, and or non-binaryhood, or however you assign yourself and describe yourself. So we all have our different nuances, and I think I'm a realist that a lot of gender is a social construct anyway. It, it's it's based in you know, time and space the experience of a man a woman a non-binary person queer person today is different to two hundred years ago it's different in the u k than it is in South america for example the the role responsibilities and the expectations of gender are different so yeah gender gender expression gender conformity is a social construct gender identity for me is innate it's it's the same my, my my identity is, is 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 as innate as my sexuality and mm. and other things about me. But yeah, how I perform, how I meet the expectations of society is, is a complete construct. Right. That's what people get hung up about. That's what the debate is. We're debating the construct which is made up shit, isn't it? We made this shit <laughs> up.
1: We can change this shit. But it's great because if we made it up, it means we can make up something new. Right. There's yeah. an opportunity in that. There's there's a hopefulness in that for me because even though i i rail at any constructs being put on me i also recognize that because it's made up we can just make up something new and that sounds so much easier right we can just make up something new and it's not that easy i get it my impatience coming out again but there's a hopefulness there that we could that we could incrementally make those steps and change it because society isn't set in stone it's constantly changing, constantly evolving. You know, we're not in the UK. We're not the same society now that we were when I moved here in 2001. Like just in that instance, things have changed. Pre-COVID versus post-COVID or during COVID. All of these things, constant change, constant evolution. And that means constant opportunity for betterment.
0: Yeah. Do you think some people just... And I don't want to be stereotypical or, or judgmental here, even if I, it does sound like I am. But some, some, I find that some people are want to be righteous and police people back into their lane or into their box or into their definition of right and wrong. And they're intolerant, if you like, of, of their rule set being breached. Whereas I think you listen to what you're saying, I certainly I, I think once you've breached those rule sets, you realize that they're, they're social contracts, they're made up. And then you, you can be more adaptable and more flexible about other rules. You go, actually, I, that, that's just made up. Yeah, we can unmake it, we can remake it, we can paint it a different color, and it's still fine. But some people never, never challenge themselves to escape their rule set of, of programming.
1: Yeah, I do agree. And I think, you know, linking that back to your safari analogy earlier, it is scary coming out of a safe, enclosed space where maybe it is bars, but you know where they're at, you know what the expectations are, and you know what to do to thrive in that world. You might not like it, but you know what the expectations are. You step out of that comfort zone. You start questioning things and challenging things. There's there's a fear in that. And I do, you know, I see that a lot when I when I experience some of that hatred's not the right word, that's too strong, I think. But some of that pushback that I see in different areas of society around people just being who they are and being allowed to just live, I think some of that pushback is a fear-based response of, if you can question things, where does it end? And that is a such an intriguing question, because where does it end? For me, that's a, a question of, endless inevitability possibility solutions making things better but until you get to that that mindset it's scary and I do you know I try to have empathy even for that because they there must be some fear there about living outside of where you've always been right stepping outside of your comfort zone is uncomfortable and for some people that Allowing us the option or or acknowledging that we have the option to do that questions their decisions to not do that. And I think there is fear there. And, and that's that's where I try to, to let my empathy come in. Sometimes it's harder than others, I'm not gonna lie. But I I think people generally think of themselves as good people and operate from that viewpoint. And so I try to give them a little bit of love and understanding, even on the hard days. (laughs) Such hard days sometimes.
0: I just think if anyone's listened to this, uh, who would identify maybe as cis, straight, have you ever actually sat there and tried to challenge or ask the question, who am I or why am I? Mm. And something I realized going back when I was going through my questioning, trying to figure myself out, was I was trying to solve the problem. I was trying to understand why, or how, or what being trans meant, and how it how it affected me. And I was I was saying to myself, "Well, I'm an intelligent human being. I must be. must be able to square this circle. I must be able to round this off. I must be able to fix it. I must be able to go right. I've solved the problem. I'm now I'm now okay. I don't need to do this. I rationalised it out." And so did you did you go through this sort of kind of there must be a solution here somewhere. Sort of fight. yeah
1: i did and it was it's funny i mean funny it's funny now it was traumatic at the time <laughs> this this whole podcast joe is about me revealing my age to people i i very vividly recall in the mid 90s 13 14 15 years old and there was a show on tv called xena warrior princess right and the, she's, it, it was a show that was a lesbian awakening for a lot of women my age. And I remember I watched it religiously every week. And I loved the. I, I identified with the, you know, taking the lead, being assertive, finding a problem, fixing a problem, making things better, getting a happy ending. And, you know, there was a lot of queer subtext in that show. But I remember that it inspired me, but it also terrified me. And that being terrified was the part that I was like, I need to fix it. And my solution at the time, I had read a book. I don't remember which book. I'm sure somebody will, will write in and tell us that, that basically the premise, one of the premises that was made was fake it until you make it. Whatever you pretend to be for long enough, you will become. And in that sort of context, it was a warning. You know, if you pretend to be the bad guy for long enough, you'll turn into the bad guy, I think was the point of the story. But I took it as, if I pretend to be straight for long enough, I will be. And so I would, yeah, I found the problem, I'd found a solution. And then my implementation of the solution was to lay in bed every night in my room in the dark, close my eyes and chant, it's okay to be gay, but it's not for me. It's okay to be gay, but it's not for me. And I would repeat it out loud and in my head, in the dark, in my little bedroom, for it, until I fell asleep, sometimes in tears. Part of me thinks, you know, looking back, how how sad that was, that I was, I was imposing my own bars on myself because of fear. Part of me is also a little bit proud that even in my fear, I wasn't being homophobic. <laughs> it's like, it's okay to be gay. It's just not for me. So I, I you know I I definitely tried to fix it. My my solution was chanting. It was ineffective. I was definitely gay. <laughs> that didn't change. Neither did my love for Zena. Still a huge fan. But yeah, it's that that chanting that that trying to fix it, trying to lean really hard into other things to cover it up. You know, I I went to military boarding school. I went to a, a military university. I joined the military. All of these things to try and take my mind off of the fact that maybe I'm gay and how terrifying that concept was. And then having those bars removed when I you know, I, I was kicked out of the military, they eventually found out that I was gay. And at the time that was illegal. So suddenly finding myself without those constraints and being able to explore was a blessing in the end i was able to to find myself and i love my life now i'm happy i'm thriving what, what is the movie 30 30 flirty and thriving i'm definitely not 30 but i love my life now and it it was because those bars i was able to escape those bars whether on my own or because the bars were taken off of me i was able to find a new place and i think that was the point of it hopefully hopefully
0: it sounds by listening to you there that the hardest coming out you you've you've done in your life is coming out to
1: yourself god yes absolutely and i don't know why you know I i was talking about this in in my therapy session recently i love therapy recommend it for everybody but it was that I my father's side of the family you know and I was living with my dad at the time so queer so you know there were so many there there are so many queer and ally people in that side of the family and I don't know if there's something in the water in, in Pascagoula Mississippi if it maybe it's the swamp air maybe it's just my grandma's great genes I don't know but the the family is we could have had our own pride parade in in the early 90s right And so there was, I should have known, I feel now, I should have known that it was okay. But because it was me, it was that chant. And, you know, even looking back and analyzing that chant I came up with, it's okay to be gay, but it's not for me. Well, why not? Why not? What was the fear? And the fear was that it would close doors for me. And, you know, at the time I was adamant, I was going to be, I was going to go into the military. I was going to be a test pilot. I was going to transfer to NASA. I was going to join the astronaut program and I was going to go to Mars. These were the things that were happening. And none of that could happen if I was gay because it was illegal to be gay in the military. It was illegal. You know, you couldn't, we had don't ask, don't tell at the time, which essentially meant they wouldn't come out and ask you, TJ, are you gay? But if anyone found out I was gay, that counted as telling. So I essentially had to be in the closet or risk being outed and then kicked out, which was eventually what happened because it turns out I'm terrible being in the closet once I accepted who I was. Absolutely awful at it. Never been so happy to fail at something in my life in the end. But, it you know, traumatic at the time absolutely traumatic because it was the thing that I was holding on to was what my future was going to be and how it was going to look. And that was being taken away because of an innate part of me, just because of who I was in love with and who I, I loved. And it didn't seem fair. And it wasn't fair. It it was BS. <laughs> it was no good. But it, it forced me to question things and to answer things that I hadn't Allowed myself to in the past, so in the end, you know, it, it worked out. But God, it was a long road getting there.
0: <laughs> I think we need a queer mission to Mars now. We need to start, start a campaign.
1: Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, because I think uh, you'd look so cool on the Martian surface with your blue hair, <laughs> the red background. It's a kind of it'd be really you are rocking it in a in absolutely a, a queer. We have some rainbow patches and we'll have a rainbow flag on the on Mars we Listeners in this them
1: listeners can't see it but i have got a rainbow nasa pin on my Absolutely. desk even now i still like to dream
0: well i i suppose the sadness of your story there is is only is balanced by the fact that had you joined with those aspirations today you you would probably succeed mm. and not be afraid to do that i mean i i know that in the us you're one, you one election away from it going back again <laughs> into into the problem set. And what we see is, yeah, what we see in Florida and the South and Texas and other other states that are kind of, you know, I guess, red states in, mm-hmm. in in American politics language. There was some really, really worrying precedents being set around legislation. You say that don't say gay. It's not just don't say gay, it's being illegal. It's it's being actively outed and wow. ostracised around trans kids, all this kind of stuff. And we see that leaking into the UK as well, don't we? We see a lot of this
1: we do.
0: far-right rhetoric. And I mentioned the Rishi Sunak speech, but we see the chair of the Equality Human Rights Commission, we see our Home Secretary, we see our Health House Secretary, we see the problematic guidance that's been put out around supporting young trans people in schools and education, uh, it's if it sometimes it feels like we're just under under threat and under battle every day just existing doesn't it
1: it does and and so many of our community are just exhausted right when when the the essence of our existence is debated and you know air quotes around debated because I'm we're we're just existing we are we're just people living our lives what is the debate Um, that is exhausting. And when you see, when you see progress, I think certainly I did, and maybe a lot of people as well, allowed myself to become extremely hopeful. Oh, you know, we're just on the other side of the rainbow bridge, right? We're almost there. We've almost made it. And then you see that pendulum start to swing back and, you know, it starts in in other places and then you see things start to leak over here and it's it's exhausting and it's terrifying because the at the end of the day the the only agenda that i'm pushing is to let me and my friends exist peacefully right we just want to live our lives i want to be you know treated like a normal human being and allowed to seek my own happiness that's all i want and i don't feel like that's asking for something revolutionary but more and more it feels like other people see that as treasonous almost and it's it's an interesting place to be in in history and i i remain forever a pollyanna and i i am convinced that there are enough good people in the world that are standing together and will staunch the flow of backwardsness you know that, that will help us to to move forward or at least stop the slide and then move forward and I have to have that hope because otherwise what is there? you know I think it's it's an, it's going to be an interesting time, and I reckon in a hundred years they'll be studying this period in history and i hope I hope they're studying it from a place of happiness that we made the right choice and that we chose love and acceptance and not that we chose to put more bars on people's closets and force them into smaller and smaller cages. I have that hope.
0: Thank you, TJ. That was a really powerful way to finish this episode. And if you're listening today, drop a comment in. Tell us what you think. I'd love to hear your thoughts. That was a really powerful close by TJ. So yeah share share your thoughts as well. But TJ thank you. That thank was you. truly amazing. It's been a, it's been an honor to spend an hour and a half or so just chatting with you and getting to know you better. How can people get a hold of you? Connect on LinkedIn? Something like that would that be would that work?
1: Absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn, TJ Richards. It, it, there's I think there's only one of me. Certainly only one of me with blue hair. So if you just look for the the blue streak Down the middle of the the fake mohawk, that'll be me.
0: Fabulous, fabulous. And finally, just a thank you to you for listening in. I couldn't do this without your support. Get to the end saying hi. If you're not already subscribed, then please do subscribe on on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever your chosen platform is, and leave comments. And and why not give us a like? Or why not give us a, a five star recommendation? Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. I've got loads of other guests coming up. We're going to hit our 100th episode soon, and I'm sure you'll be equally inspired by them over the next few weeks, months, or even, hopefully years. And of course, if you'd like to be a guest, I'd love to have you on. So drop any feedback and suggestions to me, Joanne Lockwood at joe.lockwood at uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It has been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.